Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders past and present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Morning, Alice. Good morning. Morning, Ella. Morning, Claudia. And we are without Patty this morning for a special reason. Mm -hmm. It is young Patty's birthday. (laughs) (laughs) And he decided to stay in bed. Yes, we'll miss him dearly, but I think he's earned the sleepings. Yeah, I I think he's earned a line on his birthday. That's, I think, fair enough, maybe. Mm. I mean, maybe. So a shout-out for Patty, and we might play some of his favourite songs during the program this morning. I think so. I think every song is going to be Patty's favourite song this morning. (laughs) Listeners can probably guess what they are because uh, he's got a few (laughs) favourites. But we'll keep you in suspense. So what have we got on this week? It's uh, Victorian Law Week, and uh, there's some amazing uh, events on for the community to access at libraries, online online. at the state library, local libraries. Uh, So if you've got questions for the ombudsman or questions about the way the law operates in terms of parking fines, local council procedures, police... Uh, I did read that and think it must be quite the day for the ombudsman, hearing everyone (laughs) in the state's complaints and how they can make them, so I hope they're well prepared. Um, But, yeah, there are a heap of great events. So we've got some in Melbourne, some regional, and, like you said, some online um, one that looks particularly good is Living Free of the System. So it's designing services to support women leaving prison. Uh, so it's a panel discussion. Um, we're going to have Fitzroy Legal Service there and staff from the Advocacy Centre for Women and Flat Out. Um, and, yeah, discussing why women go to prison, what this means for their lives, families and children and what they need to get out and stay out of custody. So I'll be keen to get along to that one. Yeah, I'll be keen to get along to that one. When and... Um are these online, these events? This one is, yeah. So there's a stack of them online and then, yeah, quite a few in-person ones as well. And are they dotted around Melbourne or Victoria? Just Yeah, yep, seem to be dotted all over. So yeah, Some of them are even coffee vans, so that would be um, a bit of an extra draw card. Oh. Um, yeah, so there's a whole range of uh, things from digital property settlements to... Um, learning about your rights in the the casual workplace, mm. uh, gender discrimination rights. Mm. Um, yeah, so p- plenty of uh, opportunities, plenty of range, and and actually speaking to the people who are the legal system. So you can talk to a barrister, talk to the ombudsman, and um, plenty of lawyers there too, I imagine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's really important to be like literate in the law that's happening kind of around you. And same with like your financial stuff. Like I, I feel like that. Like I don't quite understand finance, financial things. I don't quite understand law. So 
I feel like I'm very vulnerable in that sense. Mm. And even if you, like, however much you agree with it or disagree with it, knowing what is happening in that space, I think is really important. It's something that I am trying to learn more about so that I can have greater control with either decisions or when somebody's telling me something. I want to be present and I want to be like, nah, mate, don't think so. This is what I know. And I don't have that yet. Or know how to um, know who to reach out to as well if you don't have the answer yourself. So I'll just read out the website so our listeners can hop on and see what's um, going to be happening this week in Victoria. It's lawweek.net.au. So quite straightforward. And um, <laughs> thank you for that, Claudia. <laughs> and um, speaking of law, I'm going to be looking at. What a segue! At, <laughs> wow, do you like really? that one? <laughs> um, I'm going to be yeah looking at consumer law this week on the show. Um, so I'm chatting with Bridget Rose from the Consumer Action Law Centre, um, and we're going to be looking at the dodgy um, sales practices by a lot of telco companies Um, and in particular I'm keen to ask her about the very large fine Telstra received last week. Uh, So it's $50 million um, and it was basically for their treatment and um, sales approaches to a lot of Indigenous um, communities living rural and remote. Mm -hmm. Um, It'd be interesting to listen to that, Ella. Yeah, definitely. Did you see also, I saw yesterday that, that Telstra have now set up um, in response to that, an Indigenous Aboriginal own call centre. Ah, okay, yeah, I did. I've heard they've um, yeah improved their practices. And, yeah, um, yeah, that's that's to... what I saw. I saw an article that, and I mean, that's just. I think that's just ridiculous. Anyway, like yeah. to to say that you you. I mean, I get it to to be able to talk to to them and everything like that. But if your practices are so bad that you need to just set up. A call center where you're like, oh, we can't handle that. We can't deal with that. Let's just put it yeah. here. Like, it doesn't feel like change enough. Yeah, and it sounds like they need to have more cultural awareness training for people actually working in the stores. Um, and just, um, yeah, for everyone in the company, it sounds like a really widespread issue. Mm. Um, and be interesting to know who's manning the call center because often they're offshore and, you know, how they actually are able to train mm-hmm. those people in cultural yeah. practices and the vast range of situations that the callers might be yeah, yeah. running from. Mm. It's not, I felt like it's not even a, a cultural thing. It's just, it was just a targeted and racist. Yeah. Yeah. So I meant more the sales culture. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, um, and a lot of these plans you just think shouldn't be sold to anyone really, right. um, let alone someone who's not able to pay for it or not able to um, understand the language they've used online. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people affected spoke English as a second, third or fourth language. Um, and it sounds like they really took advantage of that. Um, and I think, yeah, even though we've heard a lot about how bad it is, we've only heard a very small portion of it. Mm, yeah. um, and I was reading it was almost like by chance that it um, got unveiled because I think someone working at a agency that helped people with debt happened to be speaking with someone else from another city who worked in a similar organisation and they um, discovered they had very similar stories and realised that, yeah, this was an issue, yeah, all over because everyone was thinking it was just in their community. Wow. Well, I'm going to be speaking to um, Rowan Araf about um, who's from Human Rights Watch 
and they've they've released a report i mean this was back in april but it feels like we we need to continue speaking about it but it's the about the human um the crimes against humanity for israel um to palestinians so we're going to speak to rawan about that um i'm also I'm, we're going to just talk about Australia's response, America's response, like what's happening. But I think it's also interesting to see now. Um, I mean, the ABC and the BBC coverage of of what's happening in Palestine and those crimes against the Palestinian people um, have been just it's just been so awful it's been seen as a conflict it's two sides fighting each mm. other it's weighted it's equal weight and the bbc i've been shocked at how they've been covering this not that i probably shouldn't should have been but it's been really bad but so we were looking to social media to see a lot of docu- documentation like from the ground from palestinian people there and and what's happening and now that's being censored and so I'm just intrigued to see what Rowan thinks about that as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've noticed a lot of talk about the death toll in each count, which is obviously horrific and relevant, but I think it misses the point that they're, yeah, a colonised and oppressed nation and that's the root of the problem. Yeah. There was an article in The Conversation yesterday uh, talking exactly about that and uh, who will be accountable and how it's being perceived as a as a sort of an equal conflict and losing sight of yeah where it all began Absolutely. and it's that and it's the the language and it's what you just said there Claudia like the word conflict and mm. an equal conflict it, it's just it really it can really sit in our minds and tick away and make us think oh it's it's a war somewhere between two nations that we don't quite understand it's all very and complicated. It's, and it's all very and complicated, it's... and they've been at war forever. I mean, I know people, I've spoken to people who have said that to me because they don't understand it, and I don't fully understand it either. But I don't think many people do because it's been totally misrepresented to all of us. Yeah. And so it really worries me how it's being, how it's being reported in those kind of big media outlets like the BBC and the ABC, who, who actually we look to for a lot of the time as as impartial all oh, that and, and if anything like left leaning yeah and so this is this is coming out of it now and i'm like oh not sure um and so yeah and and then it just worries me also that now social media they're highly they're really censoring information that's coming out of palestine now like instagram but like, so those videos that we saw um have been removed so a lot of videos that people were shocked by and um which sparked people to find out more information and and be more present and aware of this, and they're they're actually not available anymore. So it, I don't know what's going to happen there, but I'd be interested to to see what Roman thinks about that as well. Yeah, yeah, scary stuff. Mm. And Claudia, how about you? Yeah, so segue from Palestine, Israel, to Australian mothers. I'll be speaking with Jenny Davidson, who's the CEO of the Council for Single Mothers and Their Children. It's a not-for-profit organisation um, that advocates for rights of of single mothers and provides resources. And she's going to be here talking about the budget last week, um, the specific announcements that relate to uh, single mothers. And obviously there was a lot in there for women, uh, in different situations. So, yeah, she's going to come along and just unpack 
that for us and uh, have a have a chat. Yeah, she was recently on the the show a couple of weeks ago talking to Priya about the Parent Next program. Um, so we might get an update on where that's at because um, there's a, a parliamentary committee inquiry into how that's operating and uh, I think submissions have just closed. So, yeah, she might have a bit of new information on where that's heading. Oh, that'll be good to hear. Fantastic. Yeah, and I think um, our first segment will have a re-listen to um, an interview from the Squatters and Unwaged Workers Airwaves. Um, So Kev and Anne spoke with Professor Bill Mitchell. Um, They basically were breaking down the budget. Um, So it'll be good to hear what they say. always like their opinion. Absolutely. Breaks it down to more mm-hmm. digestible pieces. To yeah, which I need. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Disclosure, I don't know anything. I need that. I'm looking forward to, yeah, listening to that for sure. Um, and they've definitely got a different opinion from a lot of others I've been reading in the news. So, yeah, it's Great. refreshing. <laughs> well, I think we'll kick off with some of Paddy's favourites. Um, none other than Thelma Plum, Better in Black.
To 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 
algorithms have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the, the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio a 5 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 
G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. Algorithms have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the, the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio at 5 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. And now we're going to take a listen to Anne and Kev talking about the budget on the sewer show on 3CR, which happens every Friday between 5.30 and 6.30. So here's Anne and Kev. This is Hugo Race, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Subscribe now. Thank you, Hugo, for supporting 3CR. We have a radiothon coming up in the near future, and we think everybody should support 3CR. And give us a plug on Unemployed Workers Fight Back with Anne and Kev. And as we were saying, we're uh, going to be speaking with Professor Bill Mitchell, mm -hmm. who is uh, on the line as we speak. How are you, Bill? Hi, it's, uh, I'm doing very well. How are you guys going? Really great. Great to have you on the show, Bill. I think uh, we are going to have one of the most riveting conversations about the budget compared to all of the mainstream media. So it's a real thrill to have you on the show. <laughs> you should aim higher than that. It wouldn't be very hard to have a better conversation on what's in the mainstream media. <laughs> One of the things which is becoming apparent post-COVID is that uh, unemployment's going all over the shop. We're trying to drop unemployment to 5%, 4%, 3%, apparently, according to who you want to speak to, to reach full employment. Uh, 
and we've also got this this um, uh, shortage of chefs. Uh, my mate works in transport. He can't get enough drivers. Uh, all these workers seem to have disappeared because we've been importing them from overseas uh, for so long. In terms of the budget and in terms of getting unemployment to an acceptable level, what are your thoughts um, uh, on the budget and how that might, have, might affect these situations? The one question I'd ask your mate, what wages are he, uh, he prepared to pay to attract labour? Mm. All this talk about skill shortages coming from the employers, what they're not really saying to us, to the people, is, well, we've been used to getting labour cheap on migration, short-term migration visas and uh, backpackers and all of this stuff and we've been paying rock bottom wages and dirt conditions and now that that, that labour source is temporarily absent you know we, we've, we're confronting a reality where we, 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 we could get the labour if we were prepared to pay higher wages and so their mentality is going to have to change, there's no skill shortage at the moment, there's, there's 1.8 million people without enough work. But there's not enough chefs. You know, they're saying up in Queensland that the, the tourism is um, affected up there because they haven't got the wok chefs um, uh, necessary who all, who all come from overseas. And I get your point. Uh, and my mate who works in HR for this, uh, this company that shall remain nameless uh, has been having this battle with his employers for quite some time saying, we need to pay more, we need to pay more. And now they have to pay more to get the drivers because... The cheaper drivers are no longer available, uh, so it's it's a, it exposes how the import of international workers has been used as a tool to keep downward pressure on wages. They will work for less than Australian workers. So now we need to ex uh, skill up all these wok chefs that uh, might be unemployed in Australia. But there's this gap now. It's the same with the aged care nurses, where they're saying we're going to put all this money into aged care, but we don't have the qualified. Uh, staff to look after them so you can spend all the money but if you haven't got the workers to support the spend then the program is going to be at risk. Well the two points I'd make is that one go back to when we truly had full employment in the period before the mid 1970s uh, vacancies always were larger than the unemployment pool so you had more jobs being opening up for people and there were people to to work now what did that force that forced a dynamic efficiency because as well as the bosses having to chase labor they also had to make sure that they offered training and uh, and skill development at the same time as as they opened a job slot and uh, they couldn't afford to be fussy and so their own personal prejudices had to decline, but they also had to have skill development, in-house skill development. Now, with this long extended period, three or four decades of mass unemployment, the bosses have got lazy. And as a consequence, they've forgotten that they might have to chase and pay better conditions for labour and, and actually train them. Now, the other thing to observe here is that we're really now starting to pay the price of the debilitating retrenchment of quality in our in our vocational education system, mm -hmm. and uh, the way we've decimated TAFE, the way we've forced uh, state government training 
schools like TAFEs to compete against these shopfront private education and training providers, you know, who call a library a, a steel bookshelf with two books in it. Mm -hmm. uh, we're now going to start paying the price of that because mm -hmm. when we had true full employment, we also had very well thought out, forward looking training programs, apprenticeship and skill development. And that was, off, that was often administered through the Commonwealth Employment Service, who had a forward-looking view of that, that anticipating where the skill shortages would be and where we needed to make sure there were workers getting vocational skill development. And mm. so all of those things are now, uh, you know, are missing. Yeah, so this is a budget that continues to exacerbate that problem because I did read somewhere that they it actually will be defunding universities by about 10%. That's true, but it's not necessarily the, the point I was making. The point I was mm -hmm. making was more about vocational education, not the education mm -hmm. that you get at universities. And like mm -hmm. we just had an example about two weeks ago in the Hunter Valley where the New South Wales government flogged off the scone campus, the TAFE campus, to New South Wales Racing. And uh, that just happens to dovetail nicely into a private development uh, training company that trains uh, horse racing type skills. I can see how they are still trying to supply an exploitable workforce out of the local population to fill that gap of an exploitable workforce that we used to be getting overseas. And the way I see that happening is they're still attacking the unemployed <laughs> and still saying we're, you know, too lazy to get off the couch and go pick fruit. And they're still attacking the employed because I understand there was a um, an increased ability to for the employers to have casualised labour through some changes in the industrial relations law, law recently. So it seems like there's that pincer attack on the labour force to to enable the bosses to still have an exploitable labour pool in Australia. What is their theory of inflation at the moment? Because if unemployment goes down, then inflation would, would go up. I mean, inflation wouldn't go up if there's no wages growth. So where do they think they're going to be able to drive inflation up if that's what they want? Well, I mean, they're totally con the, the whole economic narrative underpinning all of these things is totally confused now because, mm. because the all of the things that they've been telling us for years which have been just a series of uh, related fictions uh, are now being revealed to almost everybody to be fictions rather than just a few people who were pointing it out at the time. Uh, look, you know, you think back to the first Abbott hockey period when uh, hockey was treasurer and made his first fiscal statement, otherwise known as the budget. I don't use that term because it's that's uh, perpetuating one of the major fictions that the federal government fiscal situation of spending and taxes are just really similar to yours and my budgets, household budgets. Think about where the public gets its uh, its uh, miseducation from. You only need to look at uh, an explainer on the ABC website yesterday 
where where they said we'll explain what the federal budget is and one of the opening paragraphs was you, it's good to think of the federal budget like your household budget well that's just oh, no. No. <laughs> I, I was sitting in an airport lounge yesterday and the two things i read before i got on the plane was that and then a tw- a graphic mm-hmm. from the Labor Party talking about excessive debt. So the fictions are Hockey and Costello and all these characters, and the Labor Party too, I mean, they're, they're there to blame as much as anyone, told us that if mm-hmm. uh, governments ran deficits, then interest rates would rise, bond yields would rise, uh, inflation would rise, and we would uh, be in desperate shape. Now, none of that's happened. We've abandoned that narrative. Uh, someone said to me, say, oh, the DNA of the government's changed. I said, well, DNA doesn't change. Uh, politics have changed. And, uh, but, but, you know, they, they haven't got a theory of inflation anymore. Because mm. in, their, in their own fiscal papers, the wages growth is flat out to 2024. It's hardly... Wages mm-hmm. are hardly growing. Real wages are falling. And, and, and to be fair, they, I'm very happy that they've uh, adopted the principle of driving unemployment down as low as they can rather than worrying about mm-hmm. deficit numbers and debt numbers. But they can't claim credit mm-hmm. for that, by the way, because really they're just following what the US government has done, d- done anyway. Uh, one of the criticisms I hear of the name of MMT is, is the word theory. Uh, and I always find it interesting because neoliberalism is also a theory. And the theory is, as you just stated, that if uh, if a government runs its deficit too high and accumulates too much debt, all these things are going to happen. That's their theory. Yeah. Well, the practice has shown that they haven't happened. And this and this proves that the, that the theory is wrong. It doesn't necessarily prove the theory is wrong, but it suggests the theory is wrong. Okay, so you're far more academic on this, and so I'll, I'll take your definition on this. Your theory appears to be far more correct. If we're talking about theories, and, and, and people say, oh, theory is only theoretical, it's not practical. The MMT as a theory is, is proving to be far more practical than neoliberalism as a theory, which is proving through practice to be false. Well, look, I've been predicting for 20 years or 25 years that bond yields in Japan won't rise and that inflation won't increase and interest rate mm. won't rise. My, the, my colleagues in the economics profession have been predicting exactly the opposite. Well, you can work out who's correct and who's incorrect now. And now it might be mm-hmm. that I'm just, uh, I'm just a chancer and was lucky. Uh, it might also be that I actually know how those things work and that I got it right. So, you, you know, you can work out which one you want to accept. We'll get some peer review on that. Yeah. Mm. But the point is, now they're, now they're sort of like a boat that's, that's out in the sea without, without any paddles or boat motors. They're just, they don't, they're just floating around. And remember that, you know, the US Federal Reserve redefined macroeconomic policy last year when Jerome Powell stated that he was, that the Federal Reserve, that's their central bank, was abandoning this view mm-hmm. that they had to take a forward-looking view, fear of inflation, and tight, tighten policy in advance right. before the inflation had actually occurred. 
And what he said was that that had proven over two or three decades to be extremely damaging to unemployment and that it meant that policy was often much tighter than it should have been. That means contractionary. And uh, that as a consequence, that that was causing unemployment to be at elevated levels. They said it's much more sensible for us now to set policy at levels that drive employment to make sure unemployment gets to the lowest levels of possible. And then when eventually see inflation start coming up, then we'll deal with it. We're quite happy to let inflation go above 2% as long as we're driving employment down and, and then later we'll deal with it if it becomes a problem. Now, all that the Australian government's doing is just, is just aping that strategy. Well, thank you, Bill, because I had been wondering what on earth was, was actually behind this sea change um, with the Morrison government, like what really was driving their willingness to adopt something that had been so contrary to their ideology up till now. Let's be a little bit blunt. What's been driving their complete reversal of ideology and turning them into hypocrites by their own standards is what, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> There's an election coming up. You're listening to 3CR Radio. And we just heard Kev and Anne from the Sewer Show uh, speaking to Professor Bill Mitchell about the budget. Our next guest is Jenny Davidson, CEO of the Council for Single Mothers and Their Children. That's a not-for-profit organisation advocating for the rights of single mothers in Australia. And she's here to talk specifically about the impacts of the federal budget on this diverse group of parents. Welcome, Jenny. Good morning, Claudia. How are you this morning? I'm good, thank you. Lovely to have you with us. Before we unpack the, before we unpack the way the budget may have helped or hindered... Can you tell us about the diversity of mothers who are going solo? Well, sure. So single mothers um, have all sorts of different life experiences, family structures. They may have sole care. They may have shared care. You know, they may not... Um, they may be single mothers by choice or never have partnered with the parent of their child. Um, you know, they have all sorts of economic realities and all sorts of different cultural backgrounds, levels of education and and work. But one thing that they do have in common is that it is um, uh, it is the family structure most likely to be in poverty in Australia. And so that does mean that um, um, they... Many are either living below the, finance, the um, poverty line or they're actually just in financial hardship, even if they're working hard time, full-time. They're trying to make a better life for their children. They're very determined um, to make a better life for their children, but often they're worried about their own long-term financial well-being um, and their kids are missing out. They're missing out on um, things like extracurricular activities in the best-case scenario, but in other cases... They may be in, um, you know, insecure housing. Mothers are skipping meals, particularly if they're reliant on government benefits. So that brings us to the budget. Uh, what were you hoping it would deliver, and did it deliver what you expected? Uh, there was a lot of window dressing on this budget that it was a women's budget. Um, single mothers are not usually um, well 
uh, regarded or taken into account in budgets. And they did get some particular mentions in this one, but it certainly didn't achieve what we had hoped or what was possible um, because it is a big spending budget. And so there were opportunities um, that could have made a big impact on families. I mean, one of the biggest opportunities has already been missed, which is the raising of JobSeeker. But another area that's really, that really has the greatest impact on single mother families is that they are moved from parenting payment single to job seeker when their youngest child is eight. And that puts these families into poverty. It puts a lot, a lot of pressures on, on parents, mutual obligation parents. This is an unemployment benefit. These are not unemployed people. These are people with, paid care, with unpaid care responsibilities. Can we just... Um slow that down a little bit for listeners because that transition um, from one payment to another is, um, you know, it can be, it can sound quite smooth actually when you say it that you move from one thing to another. For the listeners that aren't familiar with that, can you just say, explain what um, what the the first set of um, support offers and then what that then means when the child turns eight for the, the mother rearing that child. Yeah, well, parenting payments have two categories, couple and single, and that's our traditional payment for people who need uh, um, assistance from our social security net in order to do that essential care of their children. So that should be a right of people, whether they have um, you know, a financial assistance from a, you know, a partner or or parenting, um, you know, paid parental leave or not, you should be able to make a choice to raise your own children instead of go out and get work and put them in childcare, which which shows up in the formal economy. Doing it yourself doesn't, and so it's it's not well regarded. So parenting payments single um, supports those families, but when their youngest has eight, they're moved on to job seeker. So that's a drop of at least ninety dollars a week in income. It's a step up, which happens a little bit earlier in mutual obligations. That means applying for 20 jobs a fortnight or doing a certain amount of paid or volunteer work. Um, But it also means you can earn less before the the, um, benefit starts to drop. So it doesn't top up. If you've got insecure income, it doesn't top it up. A lot of parents on parenting payment single are working, but the, the payment is their most secure and reliable form of income. It must put a lot of um, mothers in a state of anxiety if you think about the the process and the the stresses of bringing a child into the world and rearing them till the age they get to school, possibly the most intense um, hands-on years, and then they no sooner get to school and you might be reaching some point of stability and then you've got this anxiety about things changing and having to to meet all these demands to, you know, go for jobs that may or may not be suitable for your skill set or circumstances and take away your choice to raise a child and look after it yourself. Well, that's right. And we so we have a support line that single mothers can ring or email and we get a lot of calls from people who are either concerned or confused about that shift. There's a lot of uh, women that try to complete study before they know that cliff that's coming and if they don't get it done, they might not be able to finish a qualification and really change their financial reality. Um, And as you said, there's not enough flexible, family-friendly jobs. Um, I mean, children in primary school still need a parent very present. And so do a lot of teens. Lots of teens have issues 
you know, so much anxiety among our young people. There's so many other issues. And being over eight doesn't mean um, that you don't have to be a hands-on parent, as parents listening would well know. Absolutely. Yes, I have teenagers and um, I spend my time with them differently and their needs have changed, but um, it's still very necessary to be tuned in and you can't be tuned in if you're not present. So, yeah, somebody needs to be there for those conversations and uh, to hear what's what's needed. So coming back to the budget, it, um, it was quite focused on the workplace um, with... Uh, for working uh, women. Um, tell us about some of the changes that were positive for mothers who are parenting solo but are in the workplace. Look, there was a lot of money put into childcare, so that's great. It's really only helpful for parents with two or three children, and particularly, you know, when they have that second income earner to scale up their work. Um, so it wasn't actually all that helpful for single mothers. Um, it will help some. I didn't do things like help um, with uh, really kind of different models of childcare, like in-home care for people that mm. had options of night shifts or weekend. So shift work is largely unavailable for single mothers. Um, there's, there was funding for kindergarten, which which does it for four-year-old kindergarten. It helps all families, um, but it didn't extend to three-year-old kindergarten. There was lots of funding for women to lean into new work opportunities like STEM, um, job trainer and um, uh, things like apprenticeships but a lot of those again aren't necessarily accessible to women with low levels of education apprenticeships rarely um, are necessarily helpful hours for someone with small children um, there wasn't discussion about um, supporting women into non-traditional trades or job share some of those things that would help people with care responsibilities and that's not just single mothers to take on jobs that are outside standard hours and it would also appear that a lot of those opportunities might be more geared to a younger uh, person who's looking for a new opportunity in the in the workforce if you're a person who um, is already um, established in a particular area or you're parenting several children, taking up a, a, a new role, an apprenticeship, um, is is a is quite a big thing on top of what you're doing. It's not just yeah, it's it. not just work. It's also um, a mental load of taking on something new, and that that might suit some people, but it's not really catering for those that um, need work um, for more basic. Uh, needs? Yeah, single mothers were hit very hard by changes in employment, um, in the, especially in the first three months of the, the pandemic. You know, they had extremely the highest rates of job, um, job of employment changes, loss in hours. So there's a lot of underemployment and the reality is it's more competitive than ever in the job market. And if you have barriers to work, such as care responsibilities, um, or a disability or language barriers or any of those things that affect many single mother families as well, then it's going to be tough to get back into the workforce. And just quickly before we go, um, there was a single parent family home guarantee that was uh, supported in the budget. Will that be available to all single parents? 
Uh, look, it's a very interesting one, actually. It, it is interesting because single parents were, were actually mentioned in a positive way, which is a nice change. It's unusual. Uh, but it is a bit of window dressing. There's 10,000 places uh, for people who can get only a house with only a 2% deposit. Um, but you have to be a single parent um, with, a, with a dependent child. So for single mothers who've worked, you know, so hard looked after their kids and started to get ahead financially whose children are older, it doesn't help them, which, of course, is... You know, older single women are the raising face of homelessness. They, um, but also you have to be able to secure a mortgage. Getting financing is quite difficult. Single mothers find that it's a real challenge. It's not gendered segregated. So I would think we might find that it's taken up. Those 10,000 places a year may be largely taken up by men. And it's also a guarantee. So you only need 2% of your deposit. You have to pay the other 18%. It just gets added to your mortgage. Mm. So it's just the initial leg up, um, yeah. And it's yeah. also capped um, on for income. I think you have to be earning less than 125000 That's right. And, the, and there's a property cap, yeah, yeah so, in different areas. Yeah, I was thinking I mean, of what, people in inner city um, Melbourne, I think the cap is 600000 And if you had a couple of kids, you know, apartments, that's it's expensive. So, yeah, be, it is. this concept of a house, um, yeah. So, so it many might of our servant users, yeah, they're actually in private rental, which is extremely mm. unaffordable and competitive. And what was desperately needed was social housing. Yeah, so that's what's needed by our society, and that would be a great infrastructure project. Uh, so we were really sad to see that there's so much infrastructure spending, but it's not being spent on social housing. Well, thank you so much, Jenny, for taking us through that. Um, there's there's lots more we could talk to you about, but time's uh, got away. Um, <laughs> But thanks again. It's such a pleasure. I'll just put out the uh, website details for the Council of Single Mothers. It's csmc.org.au. Uh, so please check that out. Uh, there's a huge range of resources and they're really on top of everything that's going on and there's some great podcasts and all sorts of things there. So that was Jenny Davidson, CEO of the Council for Single Mothers and Their Children talking to us on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. It's just coming up to 8 o'clock.
Adelita with Lonesome. And now we've got Rowan Araf with us, Principal, Lawyer and Director of the Australian Centre for International Justice. And we're going to be talking about the Human Rights Watch report regarding Israelis' crimes against humanity and the Australian government's response. Um, Rowan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Alice. You're so welcome. Um, so not that any of our listeners really do need this because they're all pretty in tune with what's going on, but could you just give us a little glimpse of what is happening in Palestine right now? Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, we've seen um, days of aerial bombardment to, and, uh, you know, a war waged from the sky um, by the Israeli military against a defenseless population in the Gaza Strip. The Strip is occupied by the State of Israel. They have, for the last 15 years, imposed an illegal economic blockade, a closure of the Gaza Strip, preventing, uh, you know, uh, no freedom of movement allowed in and out of the Strip, and no free, no, no uh, trade in and out of the Strip, essentially. Uh, and you have a situation in the West Bank where, again, an ongoing military occupation, uh, fundamental human rights of the Palestinian people are suppressed day in, day out. Um, it's a, a system that completely uh, prevents Palestinians from expressing their full uh, right to sustainable health, to all of the freedoms um, that we would expect for anybody around the world. You recently, you've just referred to Alice, Human Rights Watch has referred to the situation in the occupied Palestinian territory as amounting to the crimes against humanity of both apartheid and persecution. And, you know, this is a this is a legal uh, standard that Palestinian human rights organizations, academics and activists have been talking about for a long time as representing the reality that they live in. So it's a very bleak situation. And I think that, um, you know, the Australian government is complicit um, in the crimes of the Israeli uh, state. And that's why we're calling on the Australian people to hold the Australian government to account for its various um, uh, acts of complicity and for its unconditional support to the state of Israel. Mm. And why are why is the Australian government specifically complicit in this? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a number of reasons. One, it provides unconditional support in the form of statements, in, the ter- in terms of encouragement of Israeli crimes and impunity. Um, and just recently, Alice, the ACIJ together with 11 human rights organizations from inside the occupied Palestinian territory in the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza, put together a joint submission uh, to DFAT, which is conducting a feasibility study into strengthening trade in Israel with the possibility of implementing a free trade agreement. Um, this to us is a complete abrogation of Australia's obligations under international law, and that's because Israel's numerous breaches of international law, uh, it derives significant economic benefits at the expense and subjugation of the Palestinian people. We don't think that Israel should be rewarded with free trade, Mm. while uh, Israel itself stunts Palestinian growth um, and economic growth and has uh, implemented policies that has, uh, you know, uh, we've seen a situation in the Gaza Strip. Uh, There's uh, an employment rate, unemployment rate of 52%. You have a poverty rate of 55%. And in the West Bank, Israel's illegal settlement enterprise 
um, which is uh, predicated on a system of land theft and exploitation of natural resources, a lack of freedom of movement. It um, thrives on a multi-million dollar industry uh, at the expense of Palestinian rights and economic growth. And we don't think that Australia should, uh, you know, reward that. And there are steps that Australia must undertake, as it's uh, obligated to as a third state under international law, not to encourage Israel's continued violations and breaches of international law. And I wonder, could you talk to us more about the Australian government's attempts to actually block an investigation into crimes against humanity with Palestine as well. Yeah, this is one of the most shameful acts of this Australian government in a long line, I think, of successive Australian governments that, unfortunately, in the last several years, we've seen, you know, Labour and Liberal governments supporting Israel unconditionally. And what we saw last year was at the International Criminal Court the Australian government joined several other small, uh, several other states at the request of the Israeli government, I might add, and this came out in Senate estimates last year. They uh, intervened at the International Criminal Court to prevent an investigation into international crimes from proceeding. Now, unfortunately, uh, now you know, fortunately, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, rejected the positions of Australia and these states, and there is now an open investigation into international crimes in the territory of Palestine, which could encompass what we're seeing, which will, I I believe, encompass the crimes that we're seeing and we're witnessing today. Mm. Um, And I think that's a shame, that that is a shameful uh, position that the Australian government took. And we call on the Australian government to withdraw uh, their objection to an uh, investigation at the ICC and support accountability measures such as the ICC and other accountability measures we say that the Australian government should impose uh, targeted sanctions against Israeli officials and entities that are directly complicit in the uh, crimes that are being perpetrated against the Palestinian people. And have any countries come to the Palestinians' people's aid as of yet? I mean, I think there is, uh, you know, moral support from people across the world. Um, But in terms of, you know, the requirements that countries are supposed to undertake according to their obligations under international law, some of the effective measures, the term under international law that they must, uh, you know, implement include targeted sanctions, arms embargoes. You know, we're seeing across the U.S., UK and the European Union, that they're also directly complicit in the crimes against the Palestinian people through arms trade. They're providing mm-hmm. the military support to the Israeli military that is, you know, dropping bombs on um, and uh, on the people of Gaza. And what we're seeing is severe breaches of international humanitarian law, which amount to war crimes, in addition to the fact that some of the crimes also amount to uh, acts that are crimes against humanity. So I think, you know, there's a there's a long um, list of actions that third states under international law are supposed to adopt, but they haven't been, unfortunately. We saw the latest inaction at the Security Council this week, thanks to the United States, which totally, uh, which provides cover to to the state of Israel. 
Uh, it's just, I mean, the deal that Biden signed um, the other day, I think that just shocked. That shocked many people around the, the world that I that I definitely follow um, socially and on their, their activist level. Um, but I, I wonder, Rowan, because obviously governments, they, they must answer to people in some sense. And it's hopeful that if we put enough pressure on them, they'll have to turn and, and actually um, acknowledge Palestine and what is happening in the war crimes here. And I, I wonder how, what do you think about how it's as of yet been um, reported in the mass media? I mean, I think um, credit to the Palestinians um, in Australia organizing who have really started to force a conversation um, and a reckoning with the media here in Australia to do better on Palestine is the term that they're using. I think there's a real problem with some of the framing um, in the mainstream media of what is happening. What we have to understand is that Israel is the oppressor mm-hmm. who is implementing a settler colonial apartheid regime. And once you understand what's happening in Palestine from that perspective, everything else becomes uh, easier to understand. You know, the, the, there is no so-called complexity to the issue, which people often raise as a way to uh, not understand the issue properly. And it, it unfortunately reflects in um, lack of support to Pal- the Palestinian struggle. But I think I'm hopeful we've seen a significant shift in terms of the the growing popularity uh, and support to the Palestinian movement, the growing global anti-apartheid struggle to end Israel's apartheid regime against the Palestinian people. And that's something that I think we're hopeful towards, but it's going to take a lot of organising and a lot of um, sacrifice, I think, on the part of people to make sure that uh, they stand up for Palestinian human rights and ensure that such a severe system of, dom- of racial uh, oppression and domination um, is, not allowed to, is not allowed to occur. I think one thing is your listeners are in Victoria. Mm-hmm. One of the most uh, shameful things that we, we, we noted last year and, and you know, activists down there from the BDS um, groups down in Australia, uh, in Victoria, have highlighted the role of the government of Victoria, the Andrews um, government, which last year entered into an agreement with Elbit Systems, an Israeli arms manufacturer, weapons uh, manufacturer, um, to establish an, an AI center for, of excellence and human and machine uh, learning. And I think that's quite um, uh, shameful and must be stopped. And we call on the Victorian government to cancel this agreement Mm -hmm. because Elbet Systems is aiding and abetting war crimes and crimes against humanity in Palestine. And we don't want the I think that the people of Victoria do not want to be indirectly contributing to these crimes through this partnership with uh, Elbet Systems, Australia and Elbet Systems. Absolutely. And so... Our listeners, as you just said, they are in Victoria, in Melbourne. What can we What can we do? How can we contribute to to this? I mean, I think the um, you know uh, joining and supporting Palestinian advocacy groups in um, Australia, 
in Melbourne. Uh, there's the presence of uh, the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. You've also got Free uh, Palestine Melbourne, um, your BDS Australia groups. Uh, if you support mm-hmm. and follow them online, they'll be able to provide you with action items, um, how to, uh, you know, what what it is that the campaigns that they're working on at the moment. There's always the methods of calling your representative and making your views known, ensuring that uh, you advise them about your position on on the Palestinian rights struggle and calling on them to do more in their capacity as, as uh, representatives of parliament to ensure that uh, there are no uh, there are no avenues for Australia to continue its complicity in the crimes against the Palestinian people. Well, thank you so much, Rowan Araf, for joining us today. Um, we'd love to have you on the show again to really just make sure that we're drumming home as much as possible um, our support for you and our support for what you do and for the people in Palestine too. Thank you again for joining us today, Rowan. Thanks, thanks so much, Alice. I appreciate that and I look forward to speaking to you in the future. Lovely. Have a great day. Okay, cheers. Bye. Thank you. And listeners out there, if you don't already, um, you can listen to on 3CR, Palestine Remembered. Um, They're on every Saturday, 9.30 till 10 o'clock. And yeah, the really important show to be listening to anyway, but especially right now. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter.
Staring into the distance as we drove back through the dust A spirit gently bending in this hope we trust Nothing on our skin makes them better than us And I left my heart in Palestine Now I'd like to take a closer look at the dodgy sales practices of a lot of telco companies in Australia. So a report released yesterday by the Telecommunications Industry Ombudsman uh, confirmed what a lot of financial counselling firms have known and been saying for a long time. Uh, These companies are often not selling responsibly, they're providing inadequate or misleading information and selling products that people don't need and can't afford. So I'm joined by... Uh, Bridgette Rose, the Senior Policy Officer at Consumer Action Law Centre. Uh, good morning and welcome to Wednesday Breakfast, Bridgette. Hi, thank you. Now, I'm keen to chat about this report, um, but first up I wanted to talk about one telco company in particular, uh, Telstra. Um, so could you tell us a little about the unconscionable conduct uh, that led to uh, in its sales to Indigenous people in rural and remote parts of Western Australia, South Australia and Northern Territory, uh, which led to their $50 million fine uh, last week. Sure. Um, yes, so the federal court upheld a $50 million penalty um, for Telstra last week. Um, that, um, and that was a case brought by the ACCC. Um, and that was in relation to many, many complaints sent in um, from financial counsellors uh, up in the north and um, in the remote parts of the country where they have seen um, just mis-selling to um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people up there. Um, conduct is really quite appalling, including um, changing, uh, you know, employment on a person's um, phone application and phone cost well over a thousand dollars often so um there was what it resulted in was um people who just were not able to afford their phones um and that was because of this sort of um unconscionable conduct and signing people up to products that they could not afford at all yeah i read that um looking at these fines the average plan was costing something like 320 dollars a month which is massive it's certainly much more than i pay um, yeah, so to not be checking um, was, people's background is, yeah, pretty shocking. And I believe a lot of people were speaking English as a second, third or even fourth language, so there was a lot of miscommunication. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, what we see in our service, I'm at Consumer Action Law Centre, and we're actually down in Melbourne, so um, none of our clients who are Victorian-based were um, involved in this particular action, but we see similar um, conduct down in Victoria as well. Um, and we have seen it, and we think that actually um, the mis-selling is, um, is not just confined to the five stores where um, the ACCC took the action in regards to, um, and it's really just um, throughout the telco industry, which is really such an awful thing because it's an essential service that people need, but they don't need um, necessarily these really expensive add-on products that um, are absolutely unaffordable for them. Yeah, absolutely. And um, this fine, it was, I think, the second largest issued under Australian consumer law, um, but it's yes. still a small fraction of um, their net yearly income, Telstra's that is. Um, yes. And like you said, this is really widespread. I think a lot of people are saying this is really just the tip of the iceberg. 
Um, so do you think this is enough to deter companies like Telstra from operating like this? Um, I think Telstra has come out and acknowledged um, problems in those stores. Um, we hope that it spreads to um, um, the selling in other stores as well, as well as other companies. We don't just see mis-selling associated with Telstra, um, but we do see it throughout the other major telcos as well. Um, and I think something that we've seen for a long time at Consumer Action is um, signing people up to unaffordable conduct, uh, contracts because telcos really don't have a um, strong set of regulations to, to require them to do proper checks. Um, so, you know, we can hope that it improves things, but I think until there's better regulation of this essential service industry, um, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But so far, it's not looking like, it's not looking great. Yeah, and um, what would that kind of regulation look like? What would you like to see? Well, um, currently telecommunications companies are um, regulated as far as consumer matters under a code called the Telecommunications Consumer Protection Code, um, and it's a voluntary code. Um, there's very little enforcement powers from the regulator. Um, basically, in the first instance, after a lot of investigation, telcos can just be directed to comply with that code. Um, and that, and then eventually, after further investigation, they might um, receive um, more of a penalty. But it's a lot of their um, specific telco rules. It's just it's way um, it's it's just nearly not nearly as strong as other essential service industries. For example, energy. Um, so what we would like to see is telecommunications um, regulated um, properly under directly enforceable regulation. Uh, which has been um, uh, drafted by the regulator with independent consultation. Yep. Yeah, Currently, can... the code is written by the industry itself. So um, you can imagine that, um, well, it's just something. It's a code written by the industry, so it's um, just not nearly as strong as codes that are written with a more independent process or an independent regulator or re um, regulation in that way. Yeah, absolutely. A voluntary code written by the industry itself doesn't sound like it's going to do a whole lot to keep companies in line. Um, That's right. And it's really a shame because it's such an essential service. And we've seen this last year, um, you know, everyone uses their phone and their internet for everything to connect to your doctor, to connect to school, to work, job interviews, Centrelink. Um, so it's an, an absolutely an essential service. But the fact that the regulation is so weak compared to comparable essential service industries is really problematic and ends up leading to um, this sort of mis-selling. Um, and in addition, it leads to um, difficulties as far as financial hardships when a person has been sold products they can't afford. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like you said, we're becoming increasingly reliant on phones. And I think we were, got a big reminder of this last year with COVID. That's right. Um, and yeah, as I said earlier, the um, telecommunications industry ombudsman released a report. Uh, Consumer Action released their own report in November last year, um, which looked at the problem with these companies. Um, so could you go into a little more detail about what these reports have found? Sure. <clears throat> well, the um, telecommunications industry ombudsman report came out this week, um, and that report was based on complaints to the ombudsman 
um, that's where a person goes um, if they can't um, resolve an issue with the telco themselves. Um, in the first instance, they would go to the ombudsman. So they have a wealth of data. So it's really good to see um, uh, what they found in that data. And what they found reflects what we have found um, through our service and what I put in our report last year, that there is business selling. Um, sometimes it's just products that people absolutely do not understand. Um, but sometimes it goes further than that. They had in the TIO report, um, the industry ombudsman report, examples of multiple companies offering, um, quote, free accessories um, or included products. And then actually free didn't mean free or um, included meant included as a fee. Um, and that's just really uh, not on. Um, and it's, um, we've seen similar conduct at Consumer Action um, when people have called to our legal advice line or through to our financial counselors, which operate the National Debt Helpline, where people have been signed up to products that they didn't know that they were being signed up to, or they didn't understand were um, on a contract, or even that they thought were free. We've seen that with tablets, for example. They thought the tablets were free, but it turns out they were on a monthly contract. Um, and then that causes... Um, a huge problem when they're on a very low income and just absolutely cannot afford those allegedly free items. Yeah, yeah, it's really irresponsible. Um, and it, yeah, like I was saying, it seems like a lot of these issues, um, many of them will just never be reported. Um, I noticed in the um, this recent report released yesterday, um, they said even with um, issues that had been reported to the ACC. See, um, when they then went to chase it up and resolve the issue with organisations, they'd find the number of people actually affected by this issue was um, ten or a hundred times more than what they'd heard. Um, so, do you think shame plays a big role in people coming forward or um, reporting when they've been missold items? Um, it could. Um, it definitely could. I think. Sometimes people just don't understand and don't even realise what's happening and why they're. Um, phone bill is so high um, and they just know that they can't pay it but often we see people who have multiple phone contracts that they didn't even realize were multiple uh, different contracts. Um, what we tend to see as well is telco debt um, is really hidden um, because staying connected to your phone and to your mobile and your internet is so important that what we've seen is people actually um, for example going without food stay connected to make sure they can pay their phone bill um, wow. and what we also see is people um, taking out payday loans or putting their phone um, phone bill on their credit card and running up credit card debt so sometimes it's hidden in other types of debt um, which is really problematic because it's it, it um, the cost um, to people then is hidden in those other debts and it's only when um, people like financial counselors um, work with their clients on their debts um, and really um, delve into what's happening with these debts um, that we uncover. Actually, there's these huge phone bills that people can't pay, and sometimes they include watches and all these extra accessories that they didn't um, necessarily need or understand would add this extra cost to their bill. Um, and they haven't been able to um, go to the phone company and um and receive some sort of affordable financial hardship option themselves. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that was one criticism there wasn't um, uh, enough options for people who, yeah, were experiencing financial hardship. 
Um, and we are running out of time, but just quickly before I let you go, um, how can people who have been affected by um, debt related to telco companies access support and help? Um, I would say if you can't pay your phone bill, you're struggling, or if you've contacted your telco and they won't give you an um, affordable payment plan, certainly call the National Debt Helpline. Um, the financial counselors who answer the phone um, have dealt with this um, many times before and understand the issues, um, and that's 1-800-007-007. Um, and you can also make a complaint at the Telecommunications Industry Ombudsman um, through their website. Excellent. Um, Great, and we'll put those on our website. Uh, thanks so much for joining us and making the time to speak to us this morning, Bridget. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And what a show. Thank you to all our guests that came on today. There's a couple of rallies to look out for this weekend as well. One's for the fairer NDIS. One is for mental health. And another one is for Palestine. We'll put some details on the Wednesday Breakfast website about those too. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.